What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of One Broken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 72 of the podcast. We are very excited you are here. They say we learned the most from our losses. That is exactly what this show is going to do. We're going to interview an elite player who's lost one to two games at a major event. We're going to break down the mistakes and how they plan to move forward from those mistakes. How often have you blamed the game on bad dice? I've done it. Brad's done it. Our guest today has never done it, not once in his life. <laughs> so we are going to Chicago. What's Chicago's nickname? Like the Windy City. The Windy City. So we're going to the Windy City. We're going to be going to the Games Workshop Windy City Open. And we're going to be talking about everyone's absolute favorite faction, Tau, playing into everyone's other favorite faction. Tyranids, and we're going to be talking about this battle of the two beloved factions to the death. Beloved, I like the fact that you beloved. give it the, with the beloved. They love it. Everyone loves it. Those are everyone's favorite factions, especially right now. Best factions in the game. My co-host, as always, is the world champion of team tournaments. He will probably talk about team tournaments a thousand times today while yeah. we record. He is the recent champion of which one? Did you win Toledo? Was Toledo the one you won? No, I just won. When we won Nova together, is that the most recent? I don't, dude. I I forget. LVO. He won LVO. Team. LVO team championships. Won that too. He's yeah. won them all. He's the prime minister of Canada because he won some event. I don't even remember the name of it anymore. Maybe Stutlings. Stutlings. He's the prime minister of Canada. Brad Chester. Yay! Brad loves Brad. Let's continue on. <laughs> Woo! A lot of other things. Listen so to the other excited. episodes. You're, I'm so excited that you, I'm, I'm so confident today that you can get our guest name right. I'm excited. I don't know what to do about it. Well, he was on our show before, so I had to practice. He came on talking white scars a long time ago. I think it's been like 50 episodes, which is crazy to me. So over a year since we've talked to this gentleman, I've been trying to get him on forever. He kept winning, and then he kept just avoiding me altogether. He actually uh, just diverted the eye contact with him the last time I saw him. But we got past the restraining order, and we're now yeah, back in business. We're back. Yeah, I got past the restraining order. It's been a year. We can talk again. I could be within 10 feet of him. He has been a champion of many factions. He was a white scar extraordinaire last season. He jumped ship. He's playing Tau now. He has done extraordinarily well with this faction. He's placed in the top all season with it. I am, of course, and talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Oliver Smith. Hey, guys. That's all you got? It's <laughs> got to be here. Very excited to talk Tau. Yeah, very excited to have you on, man. It's been it's been way too long, and you know I've been harassing you for quite a time to come on the show again. I'm gonna put you on. The, you know what? I'm gonna put you on the spot right now with an early hard question. Ready? You've been to plenty of different types of tournaments: the FLG tournaments, the GW tournaments, so tons of independent tournaments. What's your favorite format? Uh, not even just the format itself. I'll give you a double. Your favorite format. And the ones that are very well run. So I do like the GW events for very smoothness. Uh, so uh, Chicago is my first uh, GW event. And I will say how relaxed everything was, was just a breath of fresh air. They're at the, you know, the start of the round. They're not telling you to wait until, until the round officially starts. They're just saying, go guys, get your games in. It just, you know, you can call a judge and uh, there's somebody really receptive. They knew their rules. 
I really enjoyed that aspect of uh, the GW event from just a relaxed standpoint. You know, no chess clock and time was never an issue. Three-hour rounds without player-placed terrain. I would be shocked if, if people really didn't get their games in unless they were probably fairly new, um, especially with how the armies are in the meta right now. They're pretty killy, so typically you don't have much left by the end of the game anyways. Yep. From a tactical standpoint, I probably do prefer player place terrain a little bit more. I just it give I feel like it gives me a little bit more agency or control over over like my side of the board. Um, and I like player place for melee and shooting, but I would definitely say player place um, helps shooting armies a lot more because you can kind of set up and you can you know typically set up a uh, shooting you know shooting lines you know all the way down the board. Plus typically, you win, that, you win that roll, man. You get that kill box over there. Yeah, you can actually counter. I mean, I do like player place terrain. I just don't like the time to be. Honest. What's the kill box, Brad? Uh, basically, what happens is it. So, for instance, I take my hand to hand army against Oliver's, and he sees what I'm doing, and I put a piece of terrain on the middle or very close to the middle because I'm trying to stage for my deployment zone. So I want to hop. He'll pull a piece of terrain as far back as humanly possible on his side, so that I don't have the distance to make it from what I'm trying to bounce to to his objective. So he'll either leave his objective in the open or put a piece of terrain all the way at the end of the, the piece of terrain, which usually sets up uh, 20 plus inches well, from where I have to go because I can only put it at the middle. So he's trying to basically make a, a very long charge or just a spot where I have to sit. So if I want to go to him, I have to spend a turn standing there. And that's just that's not what you want to do against any army, especially Tal. But you can really you can set people up pretty bad, especially if you win the roll. You just slap that crate in the middle long ways and just put that in the middle and block that about that. It's very big for a lot of those armies that are really trying to stage in the middle. If you make them stage in the open, it's not exactly what they were hoping for. That's smart. Never thought about that, actually, because I'm always making giving people launching pads. I'm like, oh, yeah, let me just put this one over here. But yeah, you put them way back. You you always take yourself. But like, man, if you've got a shooting army, it's a big, big deal to set yourself up. Don't give your opponent places to go. I see people do that constantly. And I, I util- I'm constantly utilizing my opponent's terrain when I'm when I'm bouncing. I'm looking for where I can go and then go into their terrain afterwards, especially if you can get an assault and then end the the assault after pylons consolidates and everything else behind their piece of terrain that's super frustrating uh, to have happen to you yeah like even uh, a common a common piece of terrain for player placed is like the crates and uh crates with i'm tau i almost always position them in an advantageous like defensive spot for me like brad was saying typically 18 to 20 inches from wherever my opponent can place terrain but also to the point where they physically can't hide a model and be on an objective at the same time it takes a lot, and you'll lose games to good players if you don't, play, you know, place your train correctly. And I love you that you put around up the crates, crates, but barricades, crates, and stuff. Everything might be one of my favorite pieces of terrain because you can't charge through, so you can actually make it super hard for your opponent to get to you. And then again, if you have a shooting army, you can almost always see them behind those crates. So it's a big deal that you set it up, make them very difficult charges, and then punish them for coming over there in the first place. It's a big deal. Player place trains punishing and unforgiving if you have not done it a decent amount Ooh. yeah i'm I, real I like bad it. at it i like going back and forth with a, an expert player on it but like man if you play if you watch a game and one person's played a lot of player place terrain and the other hasn't man even if they're equal skill level and everything else man that if so one person gets 
exactly the terrain they want and the other person kind of just doesn't measure perfectly the angles and the distances that's a long game you mess up i've i've have made everybody's made mistakes i mean at some point in time with it but man every time you make a mistake in player place terrain it feels like you just deployed a unit in the open that's the the kind of ramifications it has Exactly. I, I agree with Oliver, though. I really like the GW stuff. I thought it's really smooth, and I feel like you know what you're getting into, and I like I like that fact. I don't like the player place. It's too variable for me. It makes me have to play games beforehand, and I don't want to do that. If you want to go with my personal preset terrain that changes per the mission, it would be my favorite type of game. Yeah, I like that, too. Uh, I agree. You, I get, a, you agree. get a little bit of change. You get a little bit of everything, but I, I love the, the, the terrain already being there. I just like having the most time possible, and I finish... 99.9% of my games anyways but like just having more time means that you can you and your opponent are relaxed and you don't have to worry about if either one of you are just good to go and you're finishing the game you have just a more enjoyable game all right oliver tell us a little bit about your list and what you've been running with some tau so um up until the gw event i had been running farsight and specifically triple cold star cuz cold stars are the absolute best thing in the tau book but for GW, I pivoted to Tau Sept because uh, Tau don't like ruins that uh, have no windows and block line of sight. And so I kind of zigged a little bit where everyone else, you know, or I zagged or zigged, however you want to say Zig-zag. it. Zigzag. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I went back to a crisis brick with airburst. And uh, the only way you can make an airburst crisis unit, uh, crisis suit unit work is with all the Tau set buffs, which means special characters. So uh, to buff this one five-man unit of double airburst, cyclic, ignore cover crisis suits, uh, five of them, you need long strike to give them a marker light. You need shadow sun to let them reroll wounds. You need uh, the warlord trait through boldness victory, which is sixes to hit auto wound, which helps negate uh, their poor strength of only strength four. And uh, you also need, I, in my opinion, you also need a crisis commander to ignore hit roll modifiers. So even if you're shooting out of line of sight, you are still hitting on fours with full rerolls. Um, so I have still have one cold star commander with precision of the hunter, which lets him reroll hits and wounds. And I actually just give him almost all the, the shots. He's got his high output burst cannon. Um, then he's got two regular burst cannons. So that's just 22 strength five shots and then i give him the relic flamer um for just a little bit of two damage and also melee um i can't tell you how many guys i killed in melee with him over the week over the last weekend he's a Uh, monster with full rerolls and he's getting so many attacks what's he got four plus d6 plus two melee attacks and then you're like i'm also rerolling everything oh yeah it's also damage too you're like the one the one Tau guy that can fight his way out of paperback. Yes. Um, so then I have a Crisis Commander, and he's got the the Relic Burst Cannon that will ignore wound caps and feel no pains. And then I have Shadow Sun. So I still have three commanders. I think Tau, in general, you're either going Farsight with three commanders, or you're going Tau Sept with two commanders in two different detachments, and then Shadow Sun in a Supreme, typically. And then I round it out with a couple of bombers, um, 20 crew a crew hound unit, and then two riptides, because riptides are one of the only things in the Tau army that can actually just stand out on objectives or uh, screen characters and not just die. I was thinking shake and bake. They're actually, on GW train, I actually think that they're kind of nasty because you can bounce out 
take some shots and then just bounce back behind those either mid or side pieces, depending if you're playing Dawn of War or Hammer and Anvil. Do they obscure? Yep. Yeah, yeah they're only 14 wounds. Oh, geez. Okay. But they can bounce, which is a big deal in the, this, this particular format, too, because you can just peek out, snipe something, pop back in. Yeah, um, uh, my game four opponent uh, had Custodes, and we played on the orc table, and he had Custode bikers, and my Riptide could see into the into the orc ruin and shoot Custode bikers, and there was nothing. It, it was it was rough. Um, like oh, so, so long, yeah. Right, and well, and just tall, like, and 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 Riptides are pretty tall too. So, and the orc boards on GW are just slightly smaller or shorter, I should say. Yeah, that's true. Those are kind of a pain for knights when you're playing it small, that units, though, because it's like, oh, I can hide my entire army underneath this little outpouching. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, so, mo- yeah, so most of so like the basic premise of the army is just, I've come to the conclusion, as most Tau players have, you're almost always taking Kaoyan, which is going to give you three redeploys instead of one. And then it's also just going to give you more damage, uh, turns three, four, five. So with that, uh, the, the whole idea is, like Brad said, you fire, you're either fire and fading or doing the assault move with the Riptides if you're uh, playing an army that can actually shoot back. And you're just kind of doing nickel and dime damage the first couple turns between the Riptides and then the Crisis Suits. And then you commit once you can just do overwhelming firepower and you're typically then only going into like two, you know, three quarters of an opponent's army as opposed to their whole army. And Tau still have enough firepower to pretty much cripple whatever's right in front of them. I mean, the commanders, I mean, the Riptides are scary at the end of the game. But man, if that precision of the Hunter guys alive turn five, that guy's just a menace to society with exploding fours. <laughs> You're just like, Oof. Yeah, my uh, the my precision commander also has the Tau relic, which is probably the best relic in the Tau book, which lets him make a, a normal move um, after he's declared as a as a as a target of an assault, and he it also gives him an extra two inches of movement, so he just gets to move sixteen inches if you if you nominate him for a charge, and uh, that that single relic. Uh, either inadvertently won me games because they physically couldn't charge him or they had no choice but to charge him uh and then i could get in a very advantageous spot for the next turn gosh it's crazy. That, that, that's crazy people actually underestimate that they, they everybody thinks about the fact that you can't you know i can't make my charge against him but the thing is, is if you declare a charge against him all of a sudden you're somewhere else shooting something that they didn't want because you're effectively double moving at that point in time and all of a sudden you're uh, especially if it's end game, you're in their backfield asking ten cultists how how's the day going. And he wasn't <laughs> expecting that. And they're like, not not so good anymore. <laughs> well, and, and I didn't uh, pull this off, but uh, uh, there's one kind of cool trick you can do with it, where if they declare you as a charge, you can move 16 inches near something that you're not actually that worried about, and then you could actually heroic into them. True. I never I never got a chance to do that, but that'll be on my mind going forward. Because that, that is just kind of gross. There's yeah. just a lot of armies that you can beat up on the small stuff, too. Everybody, there's so many armies that have their random trash units. If you can just move up heroic time, all of a sudden, that's just your objective. Uh-huh. Oliver, big... Brad, I need you to let me speak for a minute, please. <laughs> that's hard for me, buddy. Um, Oliver, over the course of the weekend, what was your MVP? Oh and what, what unit is on the chopping block? I hate everything about uh-huh. your face right now. The MVP is definitely between the 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 Cold Star Commander with precision 
And specifically on GW train, that crisis suit unit did so much work. And the even into power armor, once you actually do get to shoot things in line of sight, it just does so much uh, more. I don't know which one is the MVP out of the out of the two, but uh, they uh, they won those those two units can just win you games single handedly. Like I felt very I didn't get to play Eldar, but I felt very confident into every single Eldar player on the GW terrain because of that airburst unit. You just get nickel and dime people. It's crazy. It's not even nickel and dime. They just pick up full. Yeah. You quarter you quarter and you, you quarter remember, and you, um, you, yeah. You're like you know you, you're like hey you're indirect so you lose an AP. You're like I don't care. My save's terrible anyways. Like right. and and your T three so all of a sudden he's rerolling, you know plus the head. You know we were rerolling all hits. You know hidden wounds plus a wound or whatever, and all of a sudden he picks up three. You can literally get greedy and pick up three plus units of Eldar things of that nature. It is awful against that. Yeah, airburst is not not my favorite thing to see when I'm playing my elves. As a matter of fact, it might be my least favorite thing to see. Well, let's talk about this game. You had a tough game. You played the other old man in the in the building, which was Mark Parker. Let me give you his list real quick, and then we'll go into the mission and your guys' secondaries and what you were thinking about the matchup. So Mark was really breaking ground by playing Leviathan Tyranid. It's probably, probably a list no one's ever seen before. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. It's pretty much a real skew list. So he had a Neurothropt Wing Hive Tire with the Reaper of Obliterex, because why not? Ten Gargoyles, a unit of three, four, five, six, seven Tyranid Warriors, a unit of Venomthropes, a unit of Zoes. He did have all of the Carnifexes. Three units of Carnifexes, or sorry, two units of three Carnifexes and an Exocrine. So he had a lot of big boys. So going into this, what mission were you playing and what were your thoughts on this matchup did you feel that you were favored did you feel confident and then kind of give us a secondary set up the stage for us so uh specifically the uh the mission that we played it was a five objective mission um going from like the mid board you know kind of that cross-sectional deployment i can't remember the specific mission but uh it was five objectives and in, and he didn't give up max bring it down but in but i did take bring it down as a secondary i took um Tau Stranglehold as a secondary, and then I took um, Banners as a secondary because I his army is a little bit slower, so I figured uh, the Banners, if I can keep him off my half the board, would be great. What I would say is that my Crisis Suit unit that I've mentioned is very good, but it is not forgiving because I had no points to give it any sort of defensive upgrades. No shield drones, no shield generators, not even stim injectors on the sergeant. And uh, I ended up having to go first, which I was fine with. Um, and I was very worried about his fly rate. That was kind of like the only thing I was worried about. And so, as, as well, you should be. Yeah. Well, real quick, what was the mission we were playing? Uh, I was five objectives. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was going to say the only ones we had left on day three were all the basically either hammers, anything with the, the set two for GW, which is the basically hammer and anvil looking trains. Yeah, it was essentially, yeah, kind of modified hammer and anvil with five objectives. Perfect. Uh, and uh, so I actually felt okay into his list because he isn't super fast. Harpies scare me. Um, I don't necessarily think they're the best thing into Tau, especially if they, you know, go second. But they still are scary because of what they all can do. Um, but so he didn't have those. He had, you know, like you said, a bunch of 
Carnifex is, and I did have long strike, so it's like long strike could theoretically pick one up a turn if he connects. So I, I wasn't as concerned as maybe I should have been. And my first turn, I was setting my my unit up in kind of an aggressive position to go into a middle middle ter- middle piece of terrain to shoot his Carnifexes and his. Oh, what's Brad? What's the what's the big heavy bug with the big gun up? Exocrine. Exocrine. So to shoot his exocrine. And so I was pre-measuring off of his hive tyrant where I could be safe and then kind of off of like uh, zone thropes uh, so that he couldn't like run into the into the main building and like uh, smite me to death or whatever. And what the one problem that I had was I didn't respect the threat range of Tyranid warriors. So I went into this building. I did a good amount of damage, but he was really... He de- Mark was a great player, and he deployed exactly how you have to deploy in that matchup, which is just on the line. He is yep. not fast enough to make up make up for last time if, if he deploys um, uh, conservative. So because he deployed so aggressive, he was able to put pressure on right away, and I wasn't able to kill enough of what I needed to. And then his uh, warriors got a four or five inch advance. And I had uh, one unit of crew kind of screened, screening my, like kind of surrounding my crisis suits. Well, he was able to just get into the piece of terrain to see. And then he was able to just blow, blow them all away between shooting and psychic. And then just, he picked up my whole crisis suit unit with his warriors. And I don't play against a lot of Tyranids and it showed. And he capitalized on my mistake and, and it was downhill from there. So it was kind of your mistake. Do you feel like your mistake was having that unit too far forward where it could kind of catapult? It was an eight-man Tyranid Warrior Brick. What I should have done is just taken the airburst into that with all its buffs before he got PMO pain on them. And uh, and then just been at 30 inches away from that unit, uh, kind of safely hidden in my castle. Um, that's how I played a lot of my games. I played against a lot of good players, and I and I never really got greedy except for that game, and it caught and it bit me. And so had I just, you know, the the airburst will pick up maybe two, two to three warriors the first turn, you know, if things go okay. And uh, I should have just been happy with that. And then known that I'll always get to shoot first because my my shooting is so much faster than his is. And uh, I just didn't do that. And um, I lost the not only did I lose the crisis suits, but he had I don't know, he probably had three hot three. Carnifex is on my half of the board, his Hive Tyrant, and seven uh, uh, warriors, or eight warriors, all on my half of the board, um, turn my, the top of my two. Well, it's, and, it's, a, it's such a big deal because of the fact that it gains so much from to just distance from that, that charge yeah. itself. He gets the charge effectively plus three for pilots and consolidates, so he just gets bonus movement, so that's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. it was rough, and... I got. I thought I had a, had one chance to kind of dig myself out because his hive tyrant was exposed, and like I could essentially take the rest of my army and split fire between the hive tyrant, a one wounded Carnifex, and then just kind of nickel and dime the warriors. But then I just did not actually even kill the hive tyrant with the rest of my shooting, and that was pretty much game. So, which happens, you know, it wasn't even necessarily. His invul saves, his field no pains were a little bit better than normal, but I just couldn't, I didn't, again, it was Tau turn two, I have no damage buffs, um, and uh, it was, you know, and I had a, a quarter of my army gone, not not having that crisis suit unit, so yeah. had he just been out, 
my crisis suit unit theoretically turn two could have just picked. I mean, the crisis suit unit will pick up any one. I think it can actually pick up any one model in the outside of maybe like something like Bellacore that's like not giving you reroll hits and is minus one to wound at range. What but about a pretty- single armager at full buffs? Those things are tough <laughs> to kill. Any reroll against them? Do what? Any reroll hits against them? Yeah. Yeah. yeah still just I- picking it up, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you just chose one of your models. You're like, hey, this is tough things- to kill. I'm like, it's dead as hell from that unit. Can you kill two, though? That's the thing. You know, you get a wall of armagers, man. <laughs> I don't know. Do I have to worry about an armager if, if at 24 inches away from me, if, if I can hide? <laughs> then that's all I would do. If I was playing smart, maybe I wouldn't play smart. And I would, again, give up the unit. I, I hope not. It was the first time I'd used a big crisis suit brick since, I think, Dallas Open. And I don't really have any excuses because I had played five rounds prior to losing to Mark or four rounds prior to losing to Mark. And uh, it still didn't It didn't matter. You know, I just I made him made a mistake and uh, he capitalized well. And but then he bought me a couple drinks, so it was totally hey, worth it. That's yeah. Great. That's it. Who won in the end there? Who won in the end? Who won in the end? Indeed. So the big question is after this is so we know that that big mistake. Obviously, you're going to take that back. You know, you would play a little more conservatively, kind of wait for that big Kion turn to come back. I, I do want to ask about what was your playing play in this in this game? Were you did you hold him back? Because he's got a ton of guns. I was just wondering if you. We're gonna. Did you fly him off? Did you? Were you aggressive with the bombs? It's there's a there's a lot of options just because he's got so many heavy venom cannons that there's no saying that you're gonna get a second round of anything really. Yeah. So I every game I went first the whole tournament. If I went first, I typically bombed something and flew off. I really try not to get greedy with my flyers because uh, again I've learned that like. They will kill a good amount of stuff, and then they just typically die. Um, there are certain matchups that you just want to keep them on against, but also Talset bombers are not nearly as cool as Farsight Enclave bombers, which helps me not get so greedy. So against Mark, I went first, and I just flew off. And with my aggressive play with the Crisis Suits, maybe I just should have stayed on and just done more damage, but... The better play would have been, again, do what I did, fly off. His Hive Tyrant had Feel No Pain, so I did not bomb that. I bombed his uh, Exocrine twice, just so that I could uh, reliably kill it with uh, just a long strike hit, basically. Because there are 15 wounds, and like it's on average six mortal wounds, and then all I have to do is get long strike through, and, and it's a done deal. So that, And that worked out fine. But then when they came in turn two, again, turn two is not Kion, like, the both bombers shot at his high tire and it did zero wounds. So, yeah. With that being said, would you have nickel and dime everything else and just kind of left the high tire if you were doing it over again with looking back? Because you can do significantly more damage to the rest of his army, um, especially warriors, everything else, depending on how basically where he puts his buffs. Yeah. Uh, at that point of the game, his high tyrant could, could literally jump into any of my ruins. So I think I just had to, uh, and his Hive Tyrant wasn't in, like, minus one to shoot, like, aura or anything like that. Um, so it was actually a pretty good time to, to deal with it because the Rift have, uh, have Velocity trackers, so they're getting plus one to hit. Um, I just think that after losing the Crisis Suits, even if I had picked up the Hive Tyrant a little bit earlier, 
it still would have been a major uphill battle. And into Tyranids in general, on GW terrain, I could have played it very much more conservative, and it's still kind of a coin flip game, you know? I mean, they're, they're the number one win percentage army for a reason. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very strong army. Most of the stuff we'll talk about, you know, especially when we go into part two, will mainly be just pretending that you didn't move that unit because we already know that's that's a game-changing move. And that's the thing is, is I, I, I was just talking about this today. Most of the time in 40K, whoever makes that first mistake, it's that downhill. It's, you know what I mean? You just get momentum after that because you're just coming with less stuff than your opponent is after you make that whatever move in there. Puts you in, in so many of my games for and against me, you know, whether I made the mistake or my opponent made the mistake. Somebody basically gets that first leverage and kind of just pushes back uh, a lot of times. That's why a lot of times when I say people put in near matches, now ah, this should be drawish. You're like, nah, not really. It's whoever kind of whoever messes up first <laughs> is going to have a real uphill battle because you just get less things to come back with every time. So that's a big deal. Absolutely. And Mark's List 2. Like you said, those Venom Cannons on the Carnifexes just do major work, um, especially with Leviathan getting getting a free reroll to hit. Um, it All those rerolls, it, it just really adds up, and I really liked his list. Um, it's sad when when uh, Longstrike is at best wounding something on threes, and that's... And that's what it is. So that's right. Again, like they're like at best wounding on threes and hitting on only fours, let's say for long strike, he's only going to connect a couple times. You know, you're, if you're lucky, maybe three times, three out of five. So if he doesn't connect the first two turns, you're, it, you're he's going to get picked up because he doesn't get the fire and fade and he doesn't, you know, get anything else. That's really cool. Yeah. Those, those are four damage. Does he get a, does he get a, uh, invuln long strike? Hmm. No, nope. he's 14 wounds. Um, but uh, yeah, and he, and he can you can use save your protocols on him. But my list is so short of drones. Uh, it's sad. I routinely would save your protocol Shadow Sun's drones because, <laughs> and that says that's pretty funny. Like yeah, because the marker lights are are just better for my army than her than her kind of defensive drones. Basically, it's funny. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, man. I look forward to what you have to say in the Brad Hour, the Bradning, the Art of War, Unbroken After Hours, if you will. Thanks for coming on again, man. I'm excited to ha- I'm excited to have you on for a second time. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you guys for having me. I really I really enjoy these conversations. If you um, cool. if you heard a dog barking in this episode, I'm sure Seamus is going to edit a lot of that out. I have a dog and. Just like old man Brad, he's old man Iro, OMI, and he's over there just barking and trudging through my models and making all kinds of chaos, so I'm sorry for everyone listening. It's Brad's fault. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Check out our other podcast at theartofwar40k.com. We have The Art of War Vanilla with Nick Nanavati and Paul Murphy. We have the very, very Australian Art of War Down Under with the late and great Adam Camilleri. We, of course, are The Art of War Pistachio, the flavor didn't know you loved till you tried it. Thanks for listening. Join us for part two. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. Theartofwar40k.com.